Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have the true privilege of being joined by Roshi Joan Halifax. Roshi Joan is a Buddhist teacher, Zen priest, doctor of medical anthropology, and pioneer in the field of end-of-life care. She is founder, abbot, and head teacher of Upaya Institute and Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She's worn many hats throughout her life as a civil rights activist, an anthropologist who spent many years with indigenous peoples, a spiritual seeker, an author, a Buddhist teacher, a counselor to the dying, and a teacher of healthcare professionals about the dying process. In the 1970s, Roshi Joan worked with the famed psychiatrist, Dr. Stanislav Grof, on his project of LSD-assisted psychotherapy for people who are dying of cancer. She is the director of the Project on Being with Dying, a training program focused on end-of-life care, taught in hundreds of medical and educational institutions around the world, and founder of the Upaya Prison Project, which develops programs on meditation for prisoners. She's also the author of several books, including, among others, The Human Encounter with Death with Dr. Groff, Being with Dying, Cultivating Compassion and Fearlessness in the Presence of Death, The Fruitful Darkness, A Journey Through Buddhist Practice and Tribal Wisdom, and her most recent book, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. As a minor content warning, the content of this episode does focus on material heavily related to grief, death, and dying. If that material is sensitive to you, please be kind to yourself. Roshi Joan, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, Speaking personally for a moment, I've been pretty engaged with your work recently, and it's been quite personally meaningful to me. So again, thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you so much for everything, including being involved with my work. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading your book, The Fruitful Darkness. And it really covers so many topics with such both breadth and depth. We have limited time with you today, so we have to kind of choose to start somewhere. And one of the running themes of this podcast has been the impact of formative experiences, particularly in childhood, on people's development. And you had a profound experience when you were young. I I believe you were about four years old, and there was an illness that caused you to lose your sight. And I was just really wondering, what was that like? And how do you think that that experience maybe shaped you? I think it was a, a pivotal experience in many different ways. One is that it happened at an age I was sighted, and then I woke up one morning and couldn't see. And it was an experience where I slowly discovered that I had an internal life. And that internal life, of course, had been with me since, I'm sure, infancy, per se. But it became more present for me as a result of losing a sense field where your experience of the external world is obvious and constructed. So not only did I have an internal life, but also part of that internal life was imagination where I could construct a world through my auditory or my olfactory or my different senses being engaged. But also another important part of that experience was that my family brought in a caregiver whose mother had been a slave and she was an Afro-American woman. And her unconditional care of me, her joy and her values penetrated right to the marrow of my being. And so it wasn't just about a state of consciousness 
that became obvious to me through losing a sense field. Also, the experience of being physically very vulnerable and separated from people who were my age, but it was also a relationship that was key in the the development of what I really care about in the world. Mm, That's wonderful. And I think that it's really resonant for me because it feels that so much of your work has really been about caregiving of various kinds, including palliative care and working with the dying, which has been such a major part of your career for so long. Speaking on that for a moment, and that's probably going to be some of the material that we get into today. I personally had an experience when I was younger where I could remember really exactly where I was when I first realized that I would someday pass away. And I think that that experience can be a profound one for many people. The realization that they too one day will die. I think that I was about eight, maybe 10 years old. I remember exactly where I was in the room. I was in my family's living room. And I just started crying. I fell to the floor and I went, oh my goodness. You know, my first moment of true existential dread. And you've, of course, worked with so many people going through that transitional process. And so I just want to begin by asking, how has that work informed the way that you've lived in your own life or the lessons that we can learn from maybe those who are moving on in those moments or your own relationship with that kind of final ending? Well, it's a wonderful question. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that I was drawn into this work in part because of my grandmother, who as a woman who lived in Savannah, Georgia, with deep Southern roots, she was a natural caregiver to her neighbors. When a neighbor died, she would pick out the outfits they'd wear for burial. She might dress their hair. And so that kind of normalization of mortality was uh, something that I think was very important for my own psychological development. I think another thing is is that Buddhist practice has played a a very big part in my experience of caring for dying people and in training caregivers because the truth of mortality or the truth of impermanence is something that we sit with all of the time in our experience of meditation practice. the realization of the tenuousness or a fundamental insecurity that, in fact, we can count on nothing is really a powerful wake-up call. And uh, another part of it is that this contemplation of one's mortality or the truth of impermanence gives us the opportunity to prioritize, you know, what am I doing with this life? Mm. What really matters? What makes a difference? How can I bring meaning into my life? And even though in Mahayana Buddhism, there's a great emphasis on emptiness, that, and we could say, you know, this sort of allows everything in the phenomenal continuum of our moment-to-moment experience to be liberated Still, that's from the absolute perspective, but from the relative perspective, the Buddha's first noble truth was the truth of suffering. And he didn't say to turn away from it. He was clear about how important it is to turn toward the truth of suffering, learn about its causes, know that um, one can transform the experience of suffering, and there's a path through. 
So it's, you know, the Buddha Dharma has played a really important role in my own relationship with the existential uh, aspect of what it means to die or to be around dying people. Mm. Yeah, so speaking to that suffering that you're referring to or living our one life as well as we can, in your experience of sitting with people, going through that condition, going through that transition, whether it be for six months or even in the final moments of it, what has been your experience of the things that they really were valued and were kind of glad for? And what is your experience of the things that those people really regretted and wish had happened differently? It's hard for me to generalize, but, you know, I could point to tendencies. For example, people who work their whole life might end up feeling as if what really is important to them is their relationships. Mm. You know, for an older person, it could be a relationship with a child or children or grandchildren, a partner, a beloved, a husband, a wife. So relationality, connection is what is uh, very critical. Also, a question that I've heard so often asked is, did I really benefit others? Did I help others? And so, you know, altruism, which might be neglected in a person's whole life, becomes something that uh, becomes, at the end of life, it's like, what have I lived my life for just to have three cars in my garage, <laughs> which will be sold off after I'm dead. What is the downstream effect of my life? And so meaning, purpose, relationship, kindness, benefiting others has been, uh, you know, this is all an interconnected territory. And it's a territory that I think becomes more and more important to one's life, particularly when you realize the imminence of death. When you talk with people who, like Forrest, have had a really powerful experience of the physical reality of their own death, and in a way that, let's say, feels shocking or mm -hmm. horrifying or is dreaded, let's say, and, and I've, I've, I've heard that from people besides Forrest as well. Uh, I'm sure you have too. What do you say to them? Again, difficult to generalize, but what, what comes from your heart when you imagine speaking to someone who has that mortal terror? The thing that I don't say is it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And another thing I don't do is give advice. Uh, I think that really abjures or turns people away from their fundamental wisdom. And I might say, I'm really grateful that you're sharing this with me. And as well, I, I'd love to know what you're learning from this. Mm. Well, how can you help me understand what you're learning from this? You know, because I feel I'm a student to people who are suffering. I, I'm not their guide. I'm not their leader. I'm not there to tell them what to do or how to deal with it. But I'm there to really be present for people's natural wisdom. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment. Speaking to maybe some of the lessons that we can, can take from that mortal experience and apply to other elements of our life, it's one thing that we all know that we're going to have the big death, if you will, the death where the physical passing of the body happens. 
But there are many other little deaths that happen throughout our lives. A, a time, speaking personally, where maybe we know that we'll never dance again, or speaking for my dad that he'll never rock climb again, or that a relationship falls away, and we know that we'll never re-enter that relationship with that person again. What do you think are some of the things that the lessons that we can take from maybe that big death, the physical falling away from the body, to and apply to those other little deaths that happen throughout our lives? Well, I could do what I always like to do, except I'm the person being interviewed and ask you, <laughs> what do you think? What have you learned? <laughs> no, I think it's a great question. I mean, to speak personally for a, a small moment here, I'm definitely in a phase in my life, I'm 31 or so, where I feel like I'm going through a lot of changes. And those changes can be, can be startling in a variety of different ways. I'm not sure if I have any great learning from them other than recently I've been thinking of a rather clumsy metaphor, which is I may have a great garden in my backyard, but if I want there to be a swimming pool there, the garden has got to go. So it's kind of that necessity of leaving some things behind to make room for the other ones. But I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Lately, I've been thinking of, and I'm, I'll paraphrase, you'll, you'll know the quotation from Suzuki Roshi, who said something close to, uh, living is like knowing you're setting sail in a boat that will sink. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and I try to live with the reality that the movie could stop at any moment. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it will. There will be no slow fade to black. It'll just go out. And to live with that and the knowing of that, and probably like many parents, it's harder for me to contemplate the death of Forrest or our daughter then in a way it is to contemplate my own or the death of my wife. Uh, so I think that's mm -hmm. a piece of it too. More generally, I, I myself, maybe just through privilege and good fortune, I just feel incredibly grateful. I feel like uh, sort of like the day I was born or even conceived, reality threw me a big party <laughs> with all kinds of sounds and sights and tastes and touches and smells, including the bitter amidst the sweet. And then on the second day of my life, it was another big party. And sooner or later, all those parties, there will be the last party of all. And I'll probably want one more party because <laughs> that's kind of in my nature. But I have to face the day of the last party with gratitude for all the parties that have been thrown mm. me by reality before that. It's kind Wonderful. of how it sits for me personally. Wonderful. Well, I, you know, as, as you're talking, Rick, I think that's one view. Yeah. And, you know, another view is I've been dealt, not a party, given a party, but actually dealt some pretty hard hands. Or, yeah, for sure. You know, that might be another view. Or suddenly I've come to the end of my life and I've never given one thought to my life. That by, yeah. might be another journey yeah. that we're confronted with. So I think the thing that has been rich for me is the extraordinary variety of experiences that are possible for a human being as they go through this journey of life and when they encounter the truth that this life as we know it is going to come to an end. You know, I think another thing is, is that your notion of death is, oh, the lights go out. Well, another person's notion of death is, I'll go to heaven or hell, or another notion of uh, meeting death is it's the ultimate moment for total liberation. Or it's a moment where I can reincarnate to come back and serve suffering beings. So, you know, there are many views of what it means to actually die. 
And I think that's kind of an interesting process to be engaged in is to realize that, okay, my view is just my opinion. Mm. As my good teacher, Bernie Glassman, the late Bernie Glassman uh, often said, it's just an opinion. There are some extraordinary yogis who have an experience of attending to their mental continuum in a way that has led them to have insights with regards to the continuity of consciousness after death. I don't know, but I, you know, I'm open to all possibilities. And I think part of the work that we do is to actually be open to those possibilities and to be with not knowing, to really, you know, sit, you know, with that kind of openness. I think that's a really wonderful way of thinking. You've actually preempted a question I was considering asking, you know, maybe a little tongue in cheekly. Of course, none of us know what's going to happen to us after we die. But I was wondering what you were rooting for. But I think that you've really addressed that with the purity of accepting your own not knowing. Well, Suzuki Roshi always talked about beginner's mind, and that's become a kind of rubric, if you will, or meme in popular Buddhism. My own teacher, Bernie Glassman, talked about it in terms of not knowing. Bob Thurman, I love his translation of a phrase in the Vimalakirti Sutta where he talks about it in terms of a tolerance for the inconceivable. Mm. And it's a beautiful turn of phrase. And I think that, you know, it's, there's something very powerful about allowing yourself to drop down past the conditioning, past how we've been educated, deeper than the views that are contingent upon our own social and cultural conditioning to a place where we're open, just like, you know, most kids are just totally open. You put them in front of a Jackson Pollock and it's like, wow. (laughs) Well, life is a kind of Jackson Pollock. Mm. To speak to maybe that don't know mind a little bit more, this may or may not lead us to kind of have a slight topic change. But there was a line in uh, your book, The Fruitful Darkness, that just really struck me and stood out to me. And so I just kind of maybe a little selfishly wanted to ask you about it. You wrote, I can say little to nothing about my own true nature. And you've done probably more investigation into your own true nature than just about anyone that I can think of at least. And so that line really kind of just stood out to me. And I was wondering, what did you mean by that? Well, first of all, I think it's kind of hubris to talk about one's own true nature, Hmm. uh, number one. But that's just, you know, my perspective. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, is that these experiences of breakthrough or of realization, though they have been written about by poets and great practitioners, are really moments of, that are in a way inchoate or Mm. deeper than words can wrap around, concepts can wrap around. Thich Nhat Hanh used a beautiful phrase, direct practice realization. So you're not talking about this experience that you're having. It actually, it's an experience that moves through the body, heart, and mind. That is a realization of one's fundamental interconnectedness with all beings and things. And As I said, lots of songs and poems have been written about it, but these transpersonal experiences are very difficult to describe. And also, I think there's something else, and that is just has to do with humility, that Mm -hmm. some people want to 
rest their identity within these experiences or within an experience like this, when in fact, that is a kind of hubris or pride. And in my tradition, there's, we steer away from doing that kind of thing. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I think it's true for Forrest. It's certainly true for me in kind of in reference to having interviewed a lot of people or spoken with them. I'm just noticing how deeply touched I am and affected by this conversation in ways that are beyond my conceptual knowing. And, and so I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, and that can lead to more pregnant pauses maybe, but it's really true. And it's a, it's a mark, I think, of what we're talking about and who we're talking with. So I just want to name that in passing. Another topic switch, if I could, is we've been speaking somewhat about coming to terms with our own impermanence in various ways, large and small. And I'm thinking of people who might be listening to this who are dealing with someone in their life who's losing capacity. Maybe they're caring for a dementing partner or parent, or they're recently are grappling with the loss of a loved one. You've written really movingly about grief with regard to your own mother. And I just wondered if you had some, maybe this is a word you'd steer away from, counsel uh, for those who are grappling with the death or loss or, or change in those they love. Well, I think this goes back to what Forrest was talking about. It is another one of those deaths that we mm. go through. And what we learn, I believe, among other things, is that if we're fortunate, we learn that we actually share this experience with everyone else, not directly in terms of you know having a conversation, but all of us will experience multiple losses. And those losses will be semi-external to us, but they'll also be internal to us, including as we age, the loss of our physical capacities, or as we age, the loss of our mental capacities, or the loss of significant relationships. So, you know, this experience of loss is something that I think is profoundly humanizing in the best of circumstances. And Mm. it's this process of humanization. And, you know, I don't mean to exclude other species because actually I think other primates experience grief, Mm. you know, whether it's the great apes or whether it's an elephant. And I presume, you know, the cetaceans also experience grief, as we've seen these surmises that biologists have conjured in relation to the life of dolphins and whales. So this, when I say humanizes us, I I think that sounds like I am... I put primacy on the human species. I, I, I want to sort of back down from that. It's more that it tenderizes us. Mm. And it also makes us more humble and vulnerable in the best of circumstances. And it also connects us with all beings because all of us will experience loss. And I also recall the words of the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who said, the compassionate thing to say is not, I know what you're going through. 
but it's actually saying, I can never really know what your experience is. Mm. I can never really know what you're going through. And, you know, again, I don't give counsel to people who are grieving. I just simply try to come alongside in the whole space. If I could ask you a little bit about that, Roshi Joan, because that's been something you've really returned to here. And I, I find it both wonderful and fascinating at the same time. I'm not sure if there's a way to ask you how one goes about holding space in that way. I suspect that it's an ephemeral and beyond words experience. But to the extent that it's possible, I would love it if you could describe what holding space in that way really feels like. Well, I think you've really hit on something that um, is helpful. And that Mm -hmm. is uh, how you can be both grounded and also very open. And I did this very deep study on the nature of compassion. And I was very fortunate to have a period of time where my time was protected from administration and travel, Mm. where I had the opportunity to do a heuristic map of compassion. And I described this in the last book that I've written, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. And in the last section of the book, I take a deep dive into compassion. And I look at compassion from a number of different perspectives. And one of those perspectives has to do with the truth that one cannot be compassionate without the cultivation of attentional balance, without being grounded, without being truly present. So this is one of the qualities of our mental experience that is also an embodied experience that can be intentionally cultivated. And here we can point to the profound value of meditation practice, particularly shamatha or focused attention in terms of developing a quality of attention that is characterized by stability, high resolution, and non-judgmentality, and our capacity to allocate our attention to a single object for a sustained period of time. So attentional balance is one of the key factors or or presence, we could call it, in a more common way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Speaking of caring or compassion, you've had a really close association and even a learning relationship with a number of tribal peoples and traditions throughout your life. Uh, You seem to clearly feel an openness and a compassion for non-individual or non-Western points of view. I know there's no tidy way to tie up your many years of experience working with and learning from those cultures. But if you could offer maybe one key lesson you took from those experiences, what would it be? I don't think I can summarize it in a sort of... 30-second soundbite, but I can say one thing, how important the natural world is to me, but also how important it is that we take care of the natural world at this time, or we as a human species are not going to survive, along with the sixth extinction, mass extinction that we're facing at this time and going through at this time. Um, we're facing also a potential extinction of the human species because our delusion 
and mm. the direct and indirect violence that we are fomenting on this earth today. So what I learned from earth cherishing cultures is that they cherish the earth. Mm. I think that's a lovely way to put it. I'd like us to close with one final question. You've had so many different roles in your life and gone through so many different transitional moments. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and speak to yourself as a child or a young adult, someone who's going through those experiences, what would you want to say to that person? What would you want to really leave them with? One of the phrases that has been with me for a long time is give no fear. And I think that phrase is important to me because I'm in a woman's body. I've experienced Mm -hmm. gender bias. I've been subject to sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And I also, you know, I'm a woman in my late 70s. So, you know, I have a whole sort of lifetime of watching feminism take root in Western culture and having been part of that political and psychological movement in the West and now in Asian culture. And I would say that it has been really powerful for me as a human being, but as a woman, Mm. (laughs) not only as a human being, to move out of a grip of expectations of others and also of myself, which muted for you know, some years in my adolescence, the blooming of my capacities mentally, uh, physically, and spiritually. Mm. Finally, in my late teens, I woke up from that shadow, if you will. And in a way, it's been a hard and fascinating climb out of uh, gender bias, which uh, affects not only how men treat women, but how also women treat themselves and each other. So that's one of the things I would have said to my little girl is, you're great. Realize it now. I think that's a really wonderful reflection, and it's a great teaching to leave people with. I don't want to push our luck too much with your time here today, Roshi Joan. You've been really remarkably generous here. Yeah, thank you, because I have to get back in the Zendo, but it's been wonderful meeting with you today. And thank you so much for this invitation. Honestly, it's really, truly been just an honor and a privilege to uh, speak with you today. So thank you so much for taking the time here. And also thank you for your life of work. Yeah. Really deep gratitude, deep bows. Thank you. I'd like to close the podcast by letting people know about the Upaya Institute's general fund, which allows Upaya to provide a wide array of workshops, trainings, and retreats for thousands of people each year. Gifts to the fund also help expand Upaya's trainings in compassionate end-of-life care and advance socially engaged Buddhist practice. If you would like to give to the fund, we'll be including links in the description of today's podcast. I'd also like to remind you about Roshi Jones' most recent book, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. If you'd like to learn more about the book, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. So today we had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Roshi Joan Halifax. We began by exploring Roshi Joan's personal history, including an experience that she had as a child where she was struck blind by an illness and how that may have shaped her moving forward. 
We spent the bulk of the conversation exploring the topics of death and dying. This includes coming to peace with the reality of our own mortality and some of the ways that the lessons of the dying can inform the way that we live our everyday lives. One of the themes of today's episode was Roshi Jones' openness to don't know mind or beginner's mind, which, as she said, may have become a bit of a meme in popular culture, but truly the value in embracing our own not knowing. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. So until next time, thanks for listening.